Yeah, like Austin said, our Bible reading tonight is from John 9, verses 1 to 12, and it's on page 869 of the Pew Bibles. As he went along, he saw a, bl- a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, just a couple of things about, uh, firstly, the Gingerbread House event. It's uh, $35, not 50 Thanks, Matt. And so if you wanted to book in, do that uh, tonight. Uh, it'd be a great opportunity for people to hear the gospel. But also, for, thank you for those who prayed for this morning. We had a full house this morning. Uh, many of our playtime families, we had some families from our kids' uh, clubs as well on a Friday afternoon. They said, oh, we go to kids' club. We've come for Super Sunday. So we reckon seven, eight, nine, maybe ten families who don't normally come to church had a wonderful presentation of the gospel by QuizWorks this morning. So please keep praying for that. Getting to the sermon now. I uh, went to visit a, an older gentleman and uh, his wife had been in a nursing home for many years. She suffered a stroke and she needed extensive care. Every morning he would wake up, have a coffee, go into the nursing home and sit with her. If you've been to some of these nursing homes where people are quite incapacitated, uh, they can't speak and she would sit in a chair, they would simply wheel her out, she'd lie back, no speech, no communication, nothing. And he said to me, Angelo, I don't know why God did did this to us. We are good people. We haven't done anything wrong. Why would God punish us like this? I just don't understand. He was heartbroken. I felt his pain. His wife, that he used to do life with, was lying in a chair all day. But his question to me indicated that he didn't understand suffering. He had this idea that many people have that God punished his wife with her illness. As he looked at his life and examined his life, he said, it's not, we haven't done anything wrong. Why would God punish us? Now I tried to explain to him as best as I could as I listened to him. That illness and stroke and cancer and heart attack is not normally God's punishment for specific sins. That they are the ordinary illnesses in a fallen world. 
We're all mortal. We live in light of eternity. Every breath we take is by the grace of God. That same question comes out in John chapter 9. So significant tonight. Hear this and understand this. So the light of the world heals a blind man. You saw as he went along, you saw a man blind from birth. From birth, right? Never been able to see. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They have the same understanding of my friends in the 21st century. Someone must have sinned and God must have punished them. Problem of suffering. They believe that personal suffering was the result of personal sin. And they don't know who's responsible. His blindness was from birth, so that the options were that the man, blind man, committed some sin during his antenatal life in the womb, or his parents committed it before his birth. But his, their thinking was wrong, and Jesus would make that clear. Now, we know, and uh, as Christians, uh, this will help us bear our suffering and our pain and our rejection. There's a relationship, a general relationship, between suffering and sin due to the fall. Suffering and death are now part of the human experience. We will die because we're rebels against God. We look forward to eternity. But a person's individual suffering is not usually, we'll come to some other instances in a moment, is not usually attributable to his or her personal sin. If you read the book of Job, for example, you'll see that Job's friends argued that he must have sinned and God was punishing him. But we know the backstory of the book of Job. Job was a righteous man, a good man. And Satan was trying to bring him down. It was not God at all. They had faulty theology. Having said that, we have to acknowledge, maybe you haven't thought about this, that sometimes our sickness or our suffering is a direct punishment of God. Sometimes it is. In the Old Testament, God often punished Israel his own people because of her sins. He brought in the Babylonians to punish them. He brought in the Assyrians to punish them. He destroyed their city. He destroyed their homes. Sometimes it's direct punishment. If you read the book of Acts chapter 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to God and God took them out immediately. They collapsed and they died when they were confronted by the truth that they lied to God. Sometimes God judges immediately. And listen to what happened in the city of Corinth during communion. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and here body of Christ means the fellowship, the church, eat and drinks judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, have died. Right? But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. You know what was happening in Corinth? The wealthy Christians hosted the, the church meetings. So they didn't meet in a building like this. Uh, some of the Christians were wealthy. They had big homes. And because they had big homes, they weren't working the farms, were they? 
If you're a wealthy Christian in the first century, you have the homes, you've got your slaves and your workers, they're doing the hard work, and you gather together and you start to eat. And in communion, what they do, they didn't simply have a little bit, a little cup, a little bit of bread, they would have a feast. Get the savlaki out, get, get the pita bread out, and you know, it's going to be a great feast. And in the middle of that, they'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. But they didn't wait for the poor people, poor Christians, who are out still working the farms. They start eating, and Paul says, when you do that, when you don't recognize the body of Christ, you don't treat your brothers and sisters well, God sometimes comes in judgment upon you. He says, before you have communion, recognize the body of Christ, the people of God, treat them well. So sometimes sickness and death is a direct judgment by God on our sin. And so when I pray for someone, someone who is sick and they come to me, often I'll say, they'll say, Ange, can you anoint me with oil? That's what the Bible says in James 5, and then pray for me. Often we don't use the oil. If they like some oil, we anoint them with oil. But we pray with them. But one of the first questions I ask, is there any sin in your life? Are you rebelling against God? Are you walking away from God? Are you putting other things first? Because it may be a punishment of God, as we saw in Corinthians and Acts, for example. I've sat with her, I remember with a woman once, she said, I don't know why you asked me that, but yes. She said, I had this broken relationship with my sister and I, and I haven't been able to forgive her. I have a spirit of unforgiveness in my life. And we talked about a number, uh, number of her sins, and she repented of those. Now, it's worthwhile repenting of your sin, right? Even if you don't get physical healing. And then we prayed for her. Next day she came back, she said, it's unbelievable, that problem I had in my back is gone. May it be, for her, it was like I had this sin issue that was impacting her physically under judgment. Friends, there are healing ministries today, and maybe you've seen them on television, maybe you've been at a big rally uh, where a healer comes out. Or maybe even small gatherings, there's a, uh, there's a number of healing ministries, and they try to get you to, to list the specific sins that may have caused your illness or, or your sickness or the cancer. And they say sometimes some terrible things. Sick people who then sometimes die, people have said to them, you died because you didn't have enough faith. Or you're sick because there's too much sin in your life. Or the sin of your father or your grandfather is causing your illness. Or one of the worst things that ever said. A woman came to see me and said, someone has said to me, your son is autistic because you had sex before marriage. It's your sin. People say some terrible things trying to bring biblical advice to people. What does Jesus say about all of that? Jesus, whose sin was it that made him blind? Jesus, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He blows their faulty theology out of the water. Stop trying to blame someone's sin for his illness. Firstly, sin is, or illness is part of the human experience, but more God says, I'm going to use his lack of sight to produce a miracle. And in John's Gospel, it is the sixth sign which shows that Jesus is the Messiah. Why does Jesus perform these signs? John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus says, let me give you a sign. Here's a blind guy. I'm going to heal him so that you can see that I am the Messiah. Come and believe in me. Earlier in John's gospel, he turned water into wine. That's a different type of healing, uh, miracle, right? It's a sign that Jesus is someone greater than simply a prophet. And then Jesus goes to work. As long as it is day, he said, having dealt with their question, their false question, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, okay, I've got a blind guy. Put away your stupid question. Let's get to work. His work would mean that he would preach and heal and debate and die on the cross for our sins. He performs a miracle, the sixth sign. As I think of Jesus getting to work, I'm reminded of our need to get to work too. Our need to get to work. It was so exciting to see the work that took place this morning. Even before this morning with the playtime service and kids service. Because those playtime families and volunteers have been praying and planning and inviting for weeks now. Amen? Some of you have been involved with that. They've gone to work to bring glory to Jesus and see men and women saved. Women are organising the gingerbread house event. They're planning, they're organising, they're buying goods, they're promoting, they're getting the word out so women could come and bring their friends to hear about Jesus. And some of our women have got to work and have invited their friends to come to hear about Jesus. Still time. Some of you, and Darrell tells me we might be able to take bookings until later this week. She'll get back to me with the date, I'll let you know. Every week, God brings new people to our services. Some of you are new this tonight, and some were new this morning, and some every week. We get to work to love them, and to serve them, to honour them, to invite them into our homes. Oh, just, just before I got up to speak, I, I happened to go on Facebook, excuse me, uh, but I was, I, I was following uh, just to see how many uh, people were viewing our service, and there's a picture came up. And there was a family from our morning congregation with a new family from our morning congregation at the Lugano Seafood having a meal together. And the words were, building memories for a lifetime together with new friends. We get to work, don't we? And tonight, the young adults going to be meeting with Matt, thinking into the future, we're getting the work. What's next, God? What are we going to do next year? How can we disciple people better? How can we train people for evangelism and mission better? You get to work. And most of you get to work every week in youth ministry or, or, or kids ministry or uh, whatever it happens to be, or computer clubs, and uh, you get to work in university ministries or your school's ministries. God calls us to get to work. As Jesus works, we're too called to get to work. You know, our home groups. One of the ways to get to work in your home groups is to turn up to your home groups. <laughs> right? To say, that's an investment of my time. I will be there. Uh, unless I'm dying, unless I'm on holidays, I turn up to my group to invest in the lives of the other people. Not every three or four weeks. But every week, we get to work. We'll have a Christmas fair on site here. We're not running a carols this year, and, but on uh, December the 10th, we'll have jumping castles and animals and so on, targeting all those families in the community to try and come to get a Christmas experience. We're going to need volunteers to get to work on that. You get to work by praying for the sick, the lost, the rebel. And then we have in verses 6 to 12, the miracle. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva. 
Doesn't Jesus astound you sometimes? This is Jesus who can simply say, be healed, right? He speaks the word, be healed. He doesn't this time. Spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva of all things, and he puts it on the man's eyes. Go, he says. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This mean, the word means sin. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. People say, well, why did he do it that way this time? Why didn't Jesus just say, be healed? We're not told. Maybe he's testing the man's obedience and faith. Let's see. Some famous prophet guy, rabbi, rubs some mud on your eyes, what you've never seen before, and he says, go and wash it, and you'll see. It's worth a risk, right? <laughs> it's worth looking like an idiot. Because if you go, you haven't seen all your life. You had a faith enough to go. Keep in mind, he'd never seen Jesus. He was blind, right? He was blind when Jesus put the mud on his eyes. He goes away, he comes back seeing. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. Keep that in your minds. Now the interview begins. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begged, asking, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. You imagine a guy's been sitting all his life because he's blind, begging for money. All of a sudden he runs back. Seeing, he can see things. He's no longer vulnerable on the ground. He's a transformed man. Others said, no, hell, he looks like him. He probably looks different. Can you imagine? Your eyes are shut. You can't see, and all of a sudden, they're open. You've got eyes. Who knows? Blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes. Before nothing, with just a stare and a glare. All of a sudden, he can see. He looks different. He says, I'm the man. Yep, you're right. It's me, the beggar. The blind guy. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus. He knew the man was called Jesus. Made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where's this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. So all I know is that the guy, Jesus, put my mud on my eyes and I went and I washed and now I can see. I don't know where he is. Love the story. The miracle of Jesus, the transformation of this man. But the joy is followed by a stressful interrogation by the Pharisees. This is where we get to the rest of the chapter. Firstly, the happy, healed man faces conflict and interrogation. This should have been the happiest day of his life. There's hard questions, right? They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been healed. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. There's Jesus getting in trouble again. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, right? In the Pharisaical standpoint, Jesus had infringed the Sabbath tradition at two, probably three points. First, he healed on the Sabbath, which was permissible only when life was in danger. Second, in making mud, he kneaded on the Sabbath. He worked, right? Which was specifically forbidden. Thirdly, he had anointed the man's eyes, which the stricter teachers also prohibited. Because of that, can't be a man of God, we reject him. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. There's a man standing before them who was blind at birth, can now see, and they're trying to write Jesus off. 
Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. See, this blind guy doesn't know the truth about Jesus yet. Not all the truth. He knows a little bit. He knows maybe he's a prophet. The highest category he could think of. A good man from God, a prophet. Despite breaking the Sabbath, he was God's man. So the unbelieving Jews sent for his parents. Now, you don't want to be in trouble by the Pharisees. I still do not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was blind? How is it that he can now see? Take the Fourth Amendment, say nothing, whatever it happens to be. I don't say anything. Because every time, anything they say is going to get him into trouble here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the parents don't want to upset the Pharisees. They don't want to be kicked out from the synagogue worship. They don't want to bring shame to their family name. They will be impacted socially and religiously. If they're in trouble with the Pharisees, they feel that they'll be cut off from relationship with God. And they're smart, they're clever, aren't they? We know he is our son. And we know he was born blind. But how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Love it. Smart parents, right? I don't know. Blind, can see. Got nothing. Got nothing. Sometimes you be very careful with your words, don't you? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Third interrogation, 24 to 34. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. I love this. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What are you going to do about that? Something has changed. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I've told you already, you didn't listen. Getting a bit courageous now. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Just in case they weren't upset. Now they're furious. Then they hurled insults at him, said, you are this fellow's disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man said, really? Well, that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard the opening of a man the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind beggar is now educating the religious leaders of the day. Powerful. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. If you can't deal with the situation, you throw him out. people see great miracles and often they'll say if only you see a miracle I'll believe and right throughout the New Testament Jesus performs miracles and people still do not believe the ultimate miracle in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead yet people are blind to its truth as well 
The evidence is compelling. The people refuse to believe it. John's gospel finishes with the resurrection. Mark, Luke, Matthew finish with the resurrection. That is the ultimate sign that Jesus is God's son who rose from the dead. And many of you will know of Lee Strobel, who examined the evidence for Jesus for two years after his wife became a Christian. And uh, he was so unhappy that his wife had become a Christian, he wanted to find as much evidence as possible to denounce Christianity to prove it wrong. And I read a short summary article that he wrote. It goes like this. For two, nearly two years, I explored the miniature of the historical darts on whether Easter was myth or reality. I did not merely accept the New Testament face value. I was determined only to consider the facts that were well supported historically. As my investigation unfolded, my atheism began to buckle. The atheist is starting to think about Jesus. What Jesus really executed. The evidence is so strong that even atheist historian Gerd Ludemann said his death by crucifixion is indisputable. Was Jesus' tomb empty? Scholar William Lane Craig points out that its location was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. So if it hadn't been empty, it would have been highly unlikely for a movement founded on the resurrection to have exploded into existence in the same city where Jesus had been publicly executed just a few weeks before. Find the body, kill Christianity. Then he said the Jews admitted the tomb was vacant by claiming that his body had been stolen. He says, but nobody had a motive to steal the body. Why would you steal it? Did anyone see Jesus alive again? We have nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, that confirm the apostle conviction that they encountered the resurrected Christ. Could these encounters have been hallucinations? No way, experts tell me. Hallucinations occur in individual brains like dreams, yet Jesus appeared to groups on people on three different occasions, including 500 at once. Was this some sort of vision, perhaps prompted by the apostles' grief over the leader's execution? So, well, this wouldn't explain the dramatic conversion of Saul, an opponent of Christians, or James, the once sceptical half-brother of Jesus. Neither was prime for a vision, yet each saw the risen Jesus and later died as the leader of the church. Besides, if these were visions, the body would still have been in the tomb. It says, one by one, my objections evaporated. I read books by skeptics. Their counter-arguments crumbled under the weight of the historical data. No wonder atheists so often come up short in scholarly debates over the resurrection. In the end, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. The sign is there. The evidence is there. We're blind to the sign. Finally, in verses 35 to 41, the light of the world brings spiritual sight and judgments. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out when he found him. So Jesus goes after this guy. I love this. When he, he said, well, they threw him out of the temple. So he goes after, he finds the fellow, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Friends, the reference to the Son of Man is to a figure in Daniel chapter 7, is the one who will execute judgment. He said, I am the Son of Man. He wants to 
pointing to the Daniel chapter 7. I come to bring judgment, but also salvation. The healed man puts his faith in Jesus. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. He brings salvation and he brings judgment. If you accept Jesus, today even, this morning, tomorrow, if you see that he is God's son, you will find life and forgiveness. If you reject him, you will remain blind. Some Pharisees who were with him said and asked what? Are we blind too? They're supposed to be the religious guys, the, the well-known Bible guys. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But then, Now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I love, as I conclude, how this man eloquently shows us how people often come to faith. You don't often hear the gospel once become a Christian, do you? I went to a youth group for a year and a half before I became a Christian. Every Friday night, four times a year, I'd ask questions, I'd read the Bible and have my questions answered. It took me a year and a half. Maybe for you six months. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian family. Maybe you've come to a youth group for two or three years. But somewhere you've got to make that choice. First, this man said, the man they called Jesus in verse 11. Then he is a prophet, verse 17. He opened my eyes in verse 30. He is from God in verse 33. And finally, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Where are you at in that journey? You still back here? They call him Jesus. I don't know much about him. Is he a prophet? Is he the son of God? Is he the one who died for you? Is he Lord? Friends, the resurrection declares that Jesus is both Lord and God and invites us to come and follow him. Picture the blind man, the blind beggar on the ground with nothing going his way. And Jesus spits on some mud, places on his eyes and changes everything. God's willing to come to you and to me and to change everything. Let's give thanks to him. Lord God, we thank you that uh, you bring light into the darkness, physically and spiritually. Lord, we do pray that we would not be like the Pharisees, that we would see the glory of Jesus, God's Son, God come to earth this Christmas, the God who came to earth to be our saviour, the one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who rose again to give us life, even eternal life. Lord, we do pray that each of us would know that, that Jesus and love him. And we pray that this, this season, as we head into November and December, in the many opportunities that we will get to work to share this good news with others, that they too would see and find life through Jesus. We pray for your glory. Amen.